Amen. Lord, we could spend the rest of our lives just thanking you again and again and again, praising and and worshiping you and pouring out our lives before you. Although we come humbly before you tonight, so desperate to know you better. Because to know you better is to love you more. We want to love you more. Lord, help us to just really be prepared to receive from your word that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every heart that is here. Lord, though we come from different backgrounds, different places, we're in different stages of life. We serve the same God. We're empowered by the same Holy Spirit. You desire to speak to each and every one of us tonight. And so, Lord, we just ask again that you would move in a mighty way. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's good to see you. So, uh, two and a half weeks and counting. Amen. God bless you guys who are over there so faithfully serving and working and getting the place ready. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a building, but here's the point. I just believe it's going to be a greater opportunity to reach more people for the kingdom of God, and that's what it's all about. Amen? Amen. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, turn your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to have 49, verse 29 through, through chapter 50. So we're going to finish the book tonight, and however long it takes. So just hold on to your seats. No, it should be okay. But we are going to finish the book tonight, and then... Um, we're going to finish up 1 John chapter 5 on Sunday. We'll look at 2 John next Wednesday. So be prepared for that. Be reading ahead in preparation for that. Okay, well, last week we saw the final words that Jacob delivered to his sons. Jacob's sons came to him, and you know, as a loving father, he brought words of encouragement, but also words of warning, also words of exhortation. Also, even some words of rebuke for some of his sons because of their behavior. And he let them know that their behavior would impact not only them, but the generations that would follow them. And so Jacob has just delivered these words that had both grace and warning, but also prophetic truth, words of blessing. And he faithfully ministered the word of God to every single one of his children. We talked about this being the faithful words of a loving father. Now, tonight, if you're a note taker, we're going to get right to it. I titled the message, There is Peace in the Promises of God. And much of this chapter deals with one common theme, and that common theme is death. And you know, I think it's right on time for us as a church. We've been dealing with it a lot lately, and we're going to continue to deal with it because, as you've heard me say many times, one out of every one person dies. And you know, we're all going to die if the Lord tarries, amen? But you know what? In the midst of all of that, we need to learn that God is faithful, And that we can trust in God and we can trust in His promises in the trials of life, even those that are most difficult when we have someone we love that goes to be with the Lord. So first we're going to see that there is peace in the promises of God. We're going to first see that Christians die well. In tonight's text, we're going to see the death of both Jacob and Joseph. Though they're many years apart, they're encapsulated in in the text we're looking at tonight. And we're going to see that both of them die well, and both of them die trusting in the promises of God. The reason we can die well is that we trust in the promises of God. God's word is very clear. We have nothing to fear in death. Amen? Death has no sting. Death is something that Christians can look forward to with great anticipation, realizing again that we really don't die, we just move. Number two, there is peace in the promises of God. We can grieve, we grieve, but not as those without hope. We do grieve and we should grieve. And grieving is healthy, it's biblical, it's, it's 
God, you know, his son Jesus grieves himself in John 11 when he just wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So we do grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. Number three, we can trust God to bring us even through the deepest places of mourning. I know for some of you, death is very fresh right now. I know right in this room, we have someone who's lost their mom, parents who've lost a child, another set of parents who lost a baby. I mean, we've had a lot of people go through very difficult times. Some of you might, you know, another person I know, their dad just died recently. So we have a lot of people that are going through this. And guys, if you haven't gone through it yet, you're going to. And so with that anticipation, we can trust God to bring us even through the deepest places of mourning. Number four, there's peace in the promises of God. What the enemy means for evil, God means for good. Guys, whatever we're going through, God is sovereign, he's in control, he knows about it, and he'll use it for his glory if we will let him. And finally, God's work continues even after we're gone. Guys, we have a testimony and if we're living a life sold out for God, it's not going to end at our memorial service. Amen? You know, when we die, God is still going to continue to speak through our lives if we live in a way that's sold out and set apart for Him. So let's begin looking at the fact that we can, that there is peace in the promises of God. First, Christians die well. We're going to pick up there in verse 29 of Genesis 49 where we left off last time. So he just got done talking to all 12 of the tribes, all 12 of his children. He's blessed each one of them. He's warned them. He's exhorted them. And then we come to verse 49, or 29, excuse me. Then he charged them and said to them. So having charged, exhorted, blessed, prophesied concerning his sons and daughters, the faithful words of a loving father that we looked at, again, all those words that have come, he now, he's not done. He's now going to charge them. He's ministered to each one of them individually, and now he's going to charge them about what is to happen concerning his own burial. Now, he'd already got told this to Joseph back in chapter 47, and Joseph had already said, Dad, when you die, I will take you back to the land of promise. Some time has gone by, and now he's charging his sons yet again what is to happen to him when he does die, as he's about to. He says there, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Gathered, I am to be gathered to my people. Though death temporarily separates us from the people that we love here on earth, it will reunite us with our people, those who have gone before us. Now guys, I want to say this very clearly. We all have people. And we're all going to be reunited to our people. It's just a matter of who your people are. Amen? And guys, that's why the Bible says, forsake not the gathering yourselves together. Guys, the people that you spend most of your time with, more than likely, are the very same people you're going to be spending eternity with. And so if you're hanging with the world all the time, and God's people are boring to you, and the church is a pain, and you just go because you have to, you know what? Those aren't your people. And guys, our people are not the people we're related to by blood, though they can be. It's not who we were born with as a family physically, but who we've been born again with spiritually. That's our family, amen? And those become our people. Guys, whether you like it or not, you're my people, and I'm your people, amen? All the more reason we ought to be getting along. All the more reason we ought to be treating each other with kindness. 
You're going to spend eternity with your people. It's just a matter of who your people are. And, you know, Jacob's going to close his eyes. Now, in the Old Testament, you've got to understand something. Jacob was going to close his eyes on earth and open them up in Abraham's bosom. So just the same was true in the Old Testament. He was going to be, you know, his body was going to remain, but his soul immediately was going to be in the presence of God. So who are his people? Again, it's those who he shared the covenant of the promises of God with. As Christians, our people, again, are those who have been born again. We've been adopted into the very same family. We don't have the same blood. You've heard me say it many times, that blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. So Jacob has an eternal perspective as he's about to die. He's resting in God's promises. I'm about to be gathered to my people. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be in the presence of my people, God's people. I'm going to be in God's presence. And so, by the way, as far as my body is concerned, which is not anywhere near as important, but is going to be a part of, te- of the testimony of what God will do, and is a picture of the faith of Jacob, he says this, bury me with my fathers. Now, Jacob lived where at this point? Don't everybody answer at once. I know it's Wednesday night. I, man, this is a quiet crowd this evening. Guys, come on now. Okay. He did live in Goshen, but where is he living at this moment? He's living in Egypt. He's living in Egypt. Remember, because of the famine, they were driven out of Goshen, and they were living in Egypt. Now, even though he lived in Egypt, he was not an Egyptian. He was a son of the promise, heir to God's covenant with Abraham and the land God had promised him. It is his desire to be buried in the land of promise. We see Jacob's unwavering faith because remember, God had told them, told him that through your family, that you know God brought that promise to him through Isaac, that you're going to inherit this land. He's just told his sons the same thing. And so he says, you know, even though we don't live there now, I believe in the promises of God that we will be there one day. And because of that, I want you to take me and not bury me here in Egypt, but bury me where our people will dwell one day. Which would be a testimony to his children and his children's children that he believed in the promises of God, even though they were not right in front of him. The, you know, we, we know that the Bible tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, it would have been a lot easier for him to be buried in Egypt, and he would have had a lot nicer place to be buried, too. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Jacob, though he wouldn't see the people come into Canaan, he believed the promises of God. Now, in the Bible, you see, personally, Egypt, to me, almost always is a type or a picture of the world. And as Christians, we are in the world, we're to be not of the world. Amen? And even though he lived in Egypt, he was not an Egyptian. And even though that's where he dwelt physically, he knew that his people and the calling God had upon him was in the land of promise. Though we live here physically, our calling and our home is in heaven. Amen? And that's the picture that we see here. We are not of this world. We're in the world, but not of the world. This is not our home. Verse 30. He says there, where should be buried in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan. Now you got to understand, Egypt was filled with magnificent tombs. Everything from the pyramids on down were these beautiful and incredible tombs. The Egyptians were obsessed with death. And one of the reasons they were obsessed with death, for them, 
They were trying to hold on to life, or they believed that, you know, whatever you brought with you into your tomb, you could take with you into your next life. And that's why they would mummify the bodies, and these guys would be put in these tombs of, you know, the pharaohs that had all the, you know, wealth in there, so they could take it with them into their next life. They were obsessed with death because they didn't understand that they could have eternal life. Egypt was filled with magnificent tombs, and because of the respect that Joseph had, and therefore his father Jacob had, he could have been buried like a pharaoh. He could have been buried in one of the most magnificent places, no doubt. We're going to find out in a moment that all of Egypt mourns for him for 70 days. Pharaoh gets 72 days. Jacob gets 70. He's a highly respected man. His son was number two in charge of all of Egypt for much of the time of his life. And so certainly he's one who could have been buried in a grand fashion. But instead he said, look, I don't want to be buried in a great tomb in Egypt. I want to be buried in a cave in the land of Canaan. You know why, guys? Because it's better to be in obscurity with the Lord than in popularity with the world. Amen? It's better to be in a place that the world doesn't find to be all that great, but be where God wants you to be, than to be in a place where the world looks upon you with you know, envious eyes where God does not want you to be. So Abraham says, look, Guys, I know there's going to be a temptation, I'm paraphrasing, to you know, have me be in a pyramid or be in some grand tomb of some kind, but you know what? Don't do that. Instead, here's what you need to do with me. I need to take me back and put me in that cave back in the land of Canaan. It says there, Abraham, says, Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field in Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. Abraham bought this place, a burial place, long before, and paid for long before Jacob's death. But that's where Jacob is going to rest. Guys, it's a picture for us that our trip to heaven, our ability to enter into heaven was paid for long before we die. But praise God, by his grace, he paid the price that we can enter in. Amen? We're entering into an eternal resting place in heaven that we did not pay for and we did not deserve. And here Jacob, going back to the land of promise to be buried in a cave that he did not pay for, but a place he knew God wanted him to be. Verse 31, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. What's interesting is, Jacob is buried with Leah. You know, throughout Leah's life, most of the time, you see her being looked down upon as the second-class wife. You remember her name means weak eyes, and some thought that meant hard to look at. I'm not sure that that's true, but, you know, Leah was the one that he was duped into marrying. He thought he was marrying Rachel, and he was deceived by his father-in-law Laban. And Leah, if you'll remember, she was the one that was giving birth to the children when Rachel wasn't. And Rachel was loved, but was barren, and Leah was unloved, but had children. And now when it comes to the end, he's put in a tomb with his first wife, the first one that he married. And it's through Leah that Judah came, and through Judah that Jesus came. And so sometimes you look and you feel bad for Leah and you think, boy, these circumstances are unfortunate and her dad tricks the guy into marrying her. But you know what? Even in the midst of all that, God was doing something great. Even as people were being rebellious, God was doing something great. And it's through Leah that the line of our Messiah would come. 
Verse 32, the field and the cave that is there was purchased from the sons of Heth. So he tells them where he needs to be buried. He makes it very clear where, they, where he is to go. And then his life is going to come to an end. So he's going to be buried. He's telling his sons, you need to travel there to take me there. It would give a clear visual and reminder to them of the land that they really belonged in. As they were taking that body back to Canaan, as we're going to see, taking that body back to Canaan, every step would be a reminder, that's not our home, this is going to be. Guys, we need to have that heavenly perspective. We need to live every day being constantly reminded, this is not our home, but heaven is where we're headed. As parents, may every aspect of our lives, our words, our actions, our character, point out to our children God's promises for us and for them. Now notice, Christians do die well. Verse 33. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is a peaceful death. You know why? Because it's the death of someone who knew where he was going. He set up. He said what he had to say to his boys. He communicated clearly what the word of God said. He spoke prophecy with great boldness. And when he was done, he looked out at his sons around him. This is a good way to go. He looks around at his sons around him. He looks them in the eye. He's told them all that he loves them. He leans back in the bed. He pulls his feet up, closes his eyes on earth, and opens them up in Abraham's bosom. Well, that's good stuff right there. Amen? Christians died. He didn't go kicking and screaming. He didn't say, get the doctor in here and see if I can get 30 more minutes. Is there something else I can do to hang on to this life? And guys, we only hang on so tightly to this life if we do not really believe what's in the next one. Amen? Now guys, we're to be good stewards and we're to live our lives for God here and we're not to shorten it by a day. We're not to take our own life. That's for God to do. But when we understand where we're headed, we should hold lightly and loosely to this one. 147 years old, He's delivered the prophetic word of God to his boys. He lays back and he's gathered to his people. He breathes his last. This ends the life of the last of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But guess what? God is still going to be at work. A lot of times we think when somebody who's being used mildly by God dies, that somehow the work ends with them. Guys, if that's true, the work was never of God to begin with. Amen? Because it's not a work of men, it's a work of God, and he can use a rock to cry out his name if he needs to. And so when a man dies, God's going to continue his work because it's not the man's work, it's God's work. And so Jacob is gone. And Jacob has been a man of God, not perfect as we know, but a man of God, used mildly by God. He's exhorted his boys, but God's not through. So there is peace in the promises of God. Christians die well. They die well. They should be able to finish strong because they rest in the promises of God. Number two, we grieve, but not as those without hope. Why? Because we trust in the promise of heaven. Look at verse one. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph mourns. Sometimes people think it's really spiritual if you don't mourn. I think it's hard-hearted if you don't mourn. Amen? Amen. I wonder where you, I could check your pulse. Are you okay? Because here's the reality. If you're not mourning, you're not loving. Because if you love people, you're going to mourn. Amen? And sometimes we try to put up a wall so we won't get hurt. Guys, it's going to hurt. Joseph, what it says here, he fell on his father's face. You know what he did? He laid his face to his father's cold face. And his cheeks to his 
dad's, his dead father's pale cheek. And he did it out of tender affection and love for him. He was grieving at parting with his father. He had been robbed of over 20 years of their relationship. And now he finally had come back together and they'd spent a great deal of time together. And now his father's going. He knew what it was like to be apart from him before. And his heart is broken that he's going to be apart from him again. He was heartbroken to have to say goodbye. Guys, even though one may believe and know that our lives go beyond physical death and we will one day be reunited reunited with those we love, it is both natural and proper to express great sorrow at the loss of a loved one. Again, I quoted this before. John 11, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus and he's about to raise him from the dead and Jesus weeps. Why? Because it's because of sin that we die. And he was weeping over the consequences of sin upon mankind, that we know death, and we know pain, and we know separation, and we know sorrow. Had there been no sin, there would have been no death. There would have been no sorrow. There would have been no separation. But here's the good news. Jesus triumphed over sin and death on the cross. And guess what? When we get to heaven, there'll be no sin, there'll be no death, and there'll be no separation, and we'll never, ever, ever have to say goodbye again. Amen? Won't that be good? I can't wait. Again, those of you who have gone through difficulty in the, the past weeks, you could say amen even louder today, I'm sure. While we are grieved by sorrow of death, we have hope and peace unlike the world. It says in 1 Thessalonians, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I don't want you to be like those who are... Now, I've done many, many memorial services. Most of them, praise God, have been for believers. But I'll tell you, when a Christian dies, the memorial service, while we grieve, is also a celebration. But if the person doesn't know God, it becomes one thing, a witnessing opportunity to every person that's still alive. Because there's no hope and there's nothing good you can say about a person who dies without Jesus Christ. It's not good. There's no way to sugarcoat it, and nor should we. Nor would the person who died want you to. Because they would want you to say, look, Luke 16, the rich man in torment, go back and tell my family that this is real. So guys, we do have a hope. And we do not grieve as those without hope. Verse 2, and Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now what's interesting about this, the Jews didn't typically embalm their people. They would typically bury them the day they died. And the reason they did, you know, in Genesis, the Bible, you know, paraphrase, you know, we come from the dirt, we come from the dust, to the dust we're going to return. And they just believe, look, when you die, you don't try to, you know, keep your body from decaying. Why would you? It's going back to dust anyway. And so you would just put it in the ground. But in this case, it's going to be sometime in a great distance that he's going to have to carry his father to go back to the land of promise. So he, he has him embalmed. Now that's a heavy-duty process, having them embalmed. Jacob's body needed to be able to travel a great distance and remained uh, viable for a great deal of time. So they embalmed him. Now, they called it mummifying. And boy, the Egyptians were really good at that. I don't know about some of you, I've been, to, I've been to museums and they've got mummified bodies from, you know, thousands of years ago. And again, their bodies are, you know, fall, but man, it's amazing how well they preserve. Well, this was a 40-day process. 
says there in verse 3, 40 days were required for him, for such are the days required of those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So they embalmed him. It took 40 days. I don't want to go into too much detail, but I looked it up. And they took you know, a great amount of these resinous substances and they put them into the cavities of the body. They remove the intestines. They heat the bones to dry them out. They anoint them with spices. They wrap them with numerous folds of a linen cloth that are held together by, by gum. They deposit uh, them into a chest in the form of a human body. And this is a major undertaking. Almost an art form with the Egyptians. And again, it's evidenced by the bodies that remain. So most of the time... Those who were put in these tombs were very wealthy. And as I said before, it was an attempt to hold on to their bodies and to hold on to their physical wealth. You know, how foolish is that? Think about it. Guys, when we die, we're leaving all of it here. You've heard it many times. You've yet to see a hearse pull in a U-Haul. Amen? You don't take anything with you. Not even the body, not even this tent that you're carrying around. It's only those who have not grasped that who would do something like this, hang on to their bodies. So Jacob's body was mummified, not so that he could hold on to his life, like the Egyptians would. Or not so that he could have more stuff in it, none of that. This was happened specifically so that his body would be viable for the long journey to be taken to back to the land of Canaan. Now... This is a really tacky joke, but I heard it. I heard a pastor say this. He said, this is the time when Jacob became both daddy and mummy. Blame that on Damien Kyle. That's where I heard it. I mean, you're going to tell someone else about that later. I promise. So the Egyptians then mourned for him for 70 days. As I said before, 72 days was the number of days they mourned to Pharaoh. This meant that the people, all of Egypt, was clothed in mourning clothes. The entire nation mourned as if a great head of state had died, as if the Pharaoh had died, just two days less. Why? Because of his relationship to Joseph. What respect is being shown to Jacob on Joseph's behalf? You know, my prayer when I read that is, I pray that we live in such a way that our whole family is respected because of us. Amen? Have you ever met somebody's family member and because you respect them so much, you, not, we should respect everybody, but you have an immediate higher level of respect for their parents or the person that you meet? I'll meet people sometimes that they're invited to church and because I love their kids or love their spouse, whoever, I'll say, wow, you know, we really love your family member. Boy, you did great. And you know, there's an automatic level of respect. Well, this is to the nth degree with Jacob because he is Joseph's father. It's because of Joseph that he is treated with su- such respect. So all of Egypt mourns. Verse 4. Now when the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there, sh- there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. Now what's interesting, some commentators say the time has gone on and he doesn't necessarily, Joseph, have the same access to Pharaoh he once had. You know, when he was saving them from the famine, he was the number two guy. And he's still obviously very well respected, but he comes to the family and has them approach Pharaoh on his behalf. But notice too, that the Egyptians would be those that would have a great deal of respect for a father's dying wish. And so he comes to him and says, my father's desire is... 
You know, I'm not saying no to what grand things you might want to do from here, but his desire was to be buried back in the land of Canaan. Joseph is faithful to his father's dying wish, but he also has respect for those in authority over him as he comes to Pharaoh and he seeks his permission. Boy, I love this heart. He's a man of authority, a man of great power, but a man who's submitted to both his father and the Pharaoh. That's an example for us, that we would be those submitted to our parents, those submitted to our employers, those submitted to our government. We don't have to agree with everything they believe, but we are to submit to them as long as they don't tell us to contradict the word of God. Amen? And here we see that example in young Joseph. Not so young anymore, growing older Joseph. Verse 6. Then Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. Pharaoh grants Joseph's request. Joseph had been a blessing to Pharaoh. He'd been elevated from prisoner to governor. His faithfulness at work brought favor in the eyes of his boss. Joseph was a man of God. He was faithful to God in the midst of trials. You know, everybody or most people can be faithful to God when everything's perfect. Just loving God. Why? Because everything's great. Right? Just joy, joy down in my heart, right? Because everything's good. And you know what, though? You know what I love about Joseph? He was faithful when he was in a ditch. He was faithful when he was a slave. And he was faithful when he was a prisoner. But then he remained faithful in times of blessing. Sometimes we're those who maybe cry out more to God when things are tough. And then things get good and we get less dependent upon God. Well, I was desperate before, but now i got money in the bank and everything's good. So, God, I don't need to really cry out to you right now. Well, he was faithful in both places. Whether he was in a ditch or second in Potiphar's house, whether he was a slave or governor of all of Egypt, no matter where he was, he was a faithful man. And at the same time, along with being faithful in trials and faithful in times of blessing, he was submitted to the authority that God had placed over him. Uh, And he had a heart of forgiveness toward those who had robbed him. So Joseph, a man of God, Faithful in times of trial and blessing, didn't abuse his power, remained submitted to those in authority, and will now be faithful to fulfill his father's charge to himself. Didn't get his brothers or servants or someone to do it for him. He could have done it. He could have called guys together and said, take my dad, here's a map, take him where he belongs. He didn't do that. He did it himself. He didn't give it away. There is peace in the promises of God. Christians die well. We grieve, but not as those without hope. Number three, we can trust God to bring us through even the deepest places of mourning. Look at verse seven. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his house and the elders of the land of Egypt. Man, this is a funeral procession. Who's going to the land of Canaan? All of Pharaoh's elders, his servants, This is a grand procession going out to the land of promise. Why? Because Joseph had been faithful. Now Jacob was respected. And now the entire nation is honoring his father because he had been such a godly man who had been used so mightily by the Lord. The godly actions of Joseph and Jacob had removed the prejudices of the Egyptians toward the Hebrews. You've got to understand, prior to Joseph, the Egyptians wanted no part of the Hebrews. Now you see the, some of the main people, the elders in Egypt, trekking great distance to honor a dead Hebrew. How does that happen? How do we change the people in this world's opinion of Christians? 
We start living lives sold out for Jesus Christ, showing them the love of God, that everything they've heard before and everything they've witnessed before is thrown out the window. God, help us to change the world's opinions of Christians so they might see Christ for who he really is. Amen? That's what Joseph had done. This is an amazing feat. They're headed out to the land of Canaan to honor this dead patriarch of the Jewish people. It says there, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only the little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with them, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Chariots and horsemen. And I imagine elephants. I just imagine this being this huge entourage of people headed out, being really transported with great pomp and circumstance. Now, you got to understand, they wind, they, this is a great distance. They went along the side of the Red Sea. They headed across the Sinai Desert, south of the Red Sea, south of the Dead Sea, then up the eastern shores of the Jordan River. And this is a similar path they would later take during the Exodus. Well, what's interesting here is they're being ex- escorted by chariots, and next time they're going to be chased out by them. What happened? How did they go from being escorted by chariots to being chased out by them? Well, sadly, over time, they became more and more like Egypt instead of being an example to them. Instead of being those who continue to follow the true and living God in the midst of their time in Egypt, they became more like Egypt, and guess what? Their testimony was gone. Guys, our way of reaching this world is not to become more like it. Amen? We need to be different, set apart. Because Joseph was so radically different and Jacob was so radically different, they were having an impact on Egypt instead of Egypt having an impact on them. Verse 10. Then they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now what's interesting He had mourned before, but now this speaks of an even deeper or greater mourning. Why why would there be a greater mourning now? You know what? I've seen this in almost every memorial service I've ever done. People mourn at the death. They mourn at the preparation. But there's something about when that body is lowered into the ground that grabs a hold of people's hearts. I've seen it happen every time, almost every time. Now, they already know the person's in heaven. They already know that the person has died, but there's something about it. It's like that final moment. There's something heavy about that. That's where they are. They're at that final moment. They've traveled the distance. They waited some time. They're carrying the body before them, and now they're really, this is coming to the end of this. This is it. And at that moment, Joseph is hit with a just, a place of mourning he had yet to be yet before. He falls to a deep place of mourning. And those who are with him are mourning as well. With a great and very solemn lamentation. The final opportunity of expressing grief was always the most heartfelt and sometimes the most dramatic. It's still true today. You know, we just had a funeral for a one-month-old baby boy. And I have to tell you, I was impacted by the entire thing. And again, we grieve, but not as those without hope. And we have absolute joy and we trust in the sovereignty of God. But do you know the part that hit me the most? Was when I watched Carcel carrying that little casket 
from one end of the place to the other to put his son in the ground. And he was having a hard time breathing because he has asthma, but he didn't want anybody else to carry his son. And I thought, wow, it just gripped my heart. And I thought, you know, that's the lamentation. The, the, you know that he's in heaven. It's okay. You know you're not even really carrying him. But you know what? As a father, as a son, it grips your heart, doesn't it? And it does because you love him so much. We do grieve. But you know what? Praise God that he brings us even through those greatest times of mourning. You understand something. While they mourned 70 days in Egypt, Hebrew mourning was seven days long. And during that time, they were in a place where they were unclean. They were ceremonially unclean for seven days. And they grieved that entire time because they're near a dead body. They were unclean for seven days. But what you saw in Scripture was at the end of those seven days, they were to purify themselves and consider that the morning had now ended. And now they were to clean themselves up. They were not to continue. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have a thought about them and grieve. Of course you do. It doesn't mean you, you know, even now my daughter and I were watching some old videos and my grandfather who died 15 years ago was on there and it just grips your heart for a second. And it will always be that way. And that's okay. But what I'm saying, though, is there are those that after an event like this mourn the rest of their lives. That is not what God would have us to do. Amen? They walk around and they're just defeated. And they're just, oh. God brings us through that. The fact that they had seven days of mourning and then they purified themselves. Because here's what happens. If we walk around mourning the rest of our lives, we become spiritually ineffective to have an impact on eternity. And we're not doing any good to the memory of the one who is now in heaven doing just fine, by the way. Amen? We've got to be very careful. I've known people that have mourned years and even decades. That is the grief of the hopeless, not the hopeful. Amen? God will bring you through it. And again, I'm not saying there won't always be a piece of you. Not always be a, you know, a heart, the heartache, of course. But what I'm saying is, we're not overwhelmed by it to the point of being rendered ineffective. We continue to grow through it. As Christians, this shouldn't be amongst us. We should be those who in the midst of it, again, we grieve. But you know what? Whatever God brings our way, he's going to bring us through it. Amen? He's greater still. He loves us. Some of you might say, well, you know, God, he didn't have to deal with, are you kidding me? How about his son? Amen? How about him knowing the separation? He knows it. And in all ways that he can relate to us. And he loves us. And he'll bring us through it if we will let him. Verse 11. And when the inhabitants of the land of Canaan saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atah, they said, this is the deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Abel Mizraim means mourning of Egypt. And they said, man, this is heavy. They recognized the depth of the mourning, the heartache, the heartbreak. And all who were with them, no doubt, joining into the mourning. And the Bible tells us as Christians that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Amen? And when you see someone hurting, we're family. I was so blessed to see so many people come to Tristan's funeral. Some of you who had never met them before came. And that's, you know, that's the body of Christ. Amen? That's how we should be. Supporting and encouraging and loving one another. Verse 12. 
So the sons did for him just as he had commanded them. They obeyed their father's desire to be buried there. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, with Abraham, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Now this is interesting. They had to enter into the land of promise to bury their father. And you would think at that point they would say, hey, it's the land of promise. Let's just stay. But guys, they would not be going back to the land of promise until God said they were going. And guys, they went back to Egypt and they went back to their old life. And they went back to what they were called to do. And Joseph went back to his position of authority. And he went back to that place. And guys, sometimes we feel, we can almost feel guilty like, well, somebody we loved is not here anymore. How can I go back and continue to you know, be used where I was used before? If we do anything else, we're missing out on God's highest. Amen? Let's do more. Let's be faithful. Let's be obedient. God is still God. He's still in control. God had brought them down to Egypt. And they should not leave until God told them it was time to go. Here's the point. Don't be moved by your circumstances. Be moved by the Lord. Amen. Amen? Their circumstances were, you know what? We're here. We brought dad back. His, his cave, you know, his grave is here. If we want to visit the grave, we need to be nearby. We should just stay here. And if God had wanted to go, that's wonderful. But that was not God's plan. Not, do not be moved by your circumstances, but wait to hear from the Lord. There is peace in the promises of God. Christians die well. We grieve, but not as those without hope. We can trust God to bring us through even the deepest places of mourning. You see him in a place of great lamentation, and now he's coming back to Egypt. He's going back to the impact on the world that God had called him to. Number four, what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually pay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of years have gone by, but here's what they thought. They were hearkening back to, maybe they'd heard the story about their own dad. Remember when Jacob left, Esau said, as soon as dad dies, I'm killing you. As soon as dad's dead, you're toast. Because I'm not going to grieve dad's heart by killing you, but once he's dead, I have no reason not to kill you. And here they were thinking, at least in part, that Joseph's forgiveness toward them was only for the sake of their dad. But now that dad's gone, maybe he's going to kill us. Maybe he's going to just take us apart now. Boy, we're in big trouble. These ten brothers who sold Joseph into slavery... We're afraid now that vengeance might finally come. You know what? A, a guilty conscience exposes men and women to continual fear. If you have a guilty conscience, you're going to be afraid a lot. If you're driving down the freeway and you see a police officer in your rearview mirror and you jump all over your brakes, you're driving too fast. Amen? You see him and you go, oh, you know, you know why? Why? Because a guilty conscience is continually upset, you know, overcome with fear. I know, the, I have co the boss calls them and they're petrified. I'm like, dude, why are you, why are you like, what did you do wrong? Because you must have done something wrong that you're afraid every time your superior calls you in. It's also been said that a, clear, a good conscience is a soft pillow. 
You know, when we're walking in the center of God's will, you know, God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind, amen? But these guys were petrified. Why? Because they had done wrong. And they thought, you know what? We, we took it out on our brother. Maybe our brother's going to take it out on us. Maybe he's going to be like, you know, Uncle Esau and want to kill us. What's going to happen? Could Joseph have brought vengeance if he wanted to? What's the answer? Absolutely. He had the position, he had the authority, they had unjustly sinned against him. He had both the ability and good reason to bring about righteous judgment upon his brothers. And now that his dad was dead, maybe he would do just that, verse 16. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. This is really kind of wimpy. It's extremely wimpy. First of all, we have nowhere in Scripture that that Jacob actually said this, so we don't know if he did. And I have an idea. He didn't. But here's what happens. They're petrified, so instead of coming directly to their brother, and if they felt like they needed to repent again, do that, instead, what do they do? They send a messenger. They don't go themselves. By the way, if you're really repentant, don't send someone else to apologize for you. You go yourself. Amen? What is that? Weak. And that shows they're not a real sign of true But what does he do instead? They send a messenger, and then they say, tell him dad said that he's got to forgive us. Because maybe he's saying that if dad's gone, he can kill us. So tell him that dad said to forgive us. Weak. Didn't initially go themselves. They sent messengers, and again, the truest form of repentance is you're going to go yourself. And they sought to use their dad's name to receive mercy. Now, they did admit they had done evil. But notice they didn't say, we did evil. They did evil to you. Tell them they did evil to you. Isn't it amazing how we do that? We try to justify our sin by, you know, talking in the third party or something else. Instead of just coming and going, you know what? I was wrong. Please forgive me. I blew it. No excuses. You've heard me say before, when confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. Make excuses, accuse others, or repent. Amen? And the first two, no bueno. You don't want to do that. Repentance. Come with a broken and contrite heart. So forgive the trespasses of your servants, of the God of your father. Now, how does Joseph respond to these words? Does he say, you wimps, what are you doing? Come here. You're my brother. He's just traveled with him all that distance. He had been with him all those years. He'd been blessing him all those years. How does he respond? Look what it says there. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You know why he was heartbroken? Because after nearly 20 years, they still had not fully assured that they had been forgiven. As Christians, we are to forgive others, but we are also to accept God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of others. Take the promise that another has forgiven you and believe it. Don't walk around under condemnation after we have been forgiven. Guys, I see people that live like that. They're like walking around under condemnation all the time. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. He came to might have life and life more abundant. Amen? Christianity is not a black robe with a wheelbarrow full of rules and heaven at the end. Oh, yeah, you're serving God. You know, sourpuss face, hit yourself with a board every three feet to prove how much you love God. You know, and there's people that are like that. 
Instead of saying, you know what, I've been forgiven. Guys, it's not a spiritual mark of, of spiritual sensitivity, but it mocks the one who has forgiven you. Many today, every time you talk to them, I know a few people like this. I have to tell you, they drive me nuts. How are you doing, bro? Oh, man, I'm just a stinking vile pile of wicked dung worthy of nothing but the torment of the eternal flames of hell. I'm not kidding. Some of you thought, oh, I know someone like that. It's true. And you know what? It sounds really spiritual. And hey, if you come to Calvary Chapel any length of time, I've made it really clear to you that we're all sinners. Amen? We are all sinners. Amen? But guess what? While it's true that we must recognize we are sinners, we must also accept that we are forgiven and that Almighty God sees us as holy through the shed blood of His Son. You know what you are? You're holy. You're a saint. You're a set-apart one. You're a child of the King. You're a new creation in Christ. You're ha-ha heaven-bound, as DC Talk would say. Amen? That's who you are. And we walk around, I'm just a vile, worthless pile of dung worthy of frying in hell. Where's the joy of the Lord? Amen? And here we have these guys that there's this continual, oh, yeah, you know, and, he's, and it breaks Joseph's heart. Have we not been together for 20 years? Did I not already forgive you? Why are you coming now and sending a messenger and trying to manipulate me? You're already forgiven. Guys, we don't need to manipulate God to be forgiven. He's forgiven us already. Aren't you glad? Amen? I know you're tired. Amen? We ought to be glad about that. Verse 18. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Now this looks a little more like repentance, but it's still a little misplaced. True repentance seeks to make restitution. They had, ensla- they had sold their brother into slavery. So now they came and said, let us be your slaves. We sold you into slavery. Let's make it right. Let us be your slaves. But you know what? Joseph didn't want slaves. You know what he wanted? Brothers. I want brothers. I've forgiven you. If I have forgiven you, I'm not going to make you my slaves. You're my brothers. Guys, we have been forgiven, and guess what? We are brothers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Does that blow you away or what? And again, we serve him, we lay our lives for him. He's our God, our Savior, our King. But it's awesome to me to think that he's also Abba Father. We have that kind of relationship with him. Joseph said to them, verse 19, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Here's what he's saying. Vengeance belongs to God and worship belongs to God. Don't worship me and don't fear vengeance from me. If there's going to be vengeance, God will bring it. And if you want to worship somebody, worship him. Why are you putting me in the place of God? You're seeking my forgiveness when you've already been forgiven and you're coming and throwing yourselves at my feet when you ought to throw yourselves at his. Are you putting me in the place of God? Joseph was caught off guard by this entire display And he seeks to put things into a godly perspective. Guys, when we receive worship or seek to bring vengeance, we have blasphemed and put ourselves in the place of God. If you seek to bring vengeance upon somebody, you're taking God's place and you don't belong there. Amen? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Who gets it? Let God. He'll do a better job of it. Amen? We want vengeance on others. We want grace for us. Isn't it amazing how that works? We blow it, grace, 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 grace. Someone else blows it, we don't like, vengeance, 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 right? I'm glad that God doesn't respond the way I would respond. I'm glad he doesn't smoke me, or I'd have been smoked many times. Praise God for his grace. Now, verse 20. No doubt many of you have quoted this verse before. It's highlighted and underlined in my Bible. Here's what it says. But as for you, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. You threw me in a pit, you meant it for evil, God used it for his good. Potiphar's wife falsely accused me. The enemy meant it for evil. God used it for his good. They threw me in prison when I didn't belong there. The enemy meant it for evil. God used it for his good. Here, guys, here's the bottom line. The end result is what matters. The end result was what? The entire world was saved from a famine that was coming. Lives were changed. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was respected in Egypt like no other time before. Why? Because he had been thrown into a pit. Now, I want you to notice that it does work out for good, but it doesn't mean it works out for what's most comfortable. Amen? People say, oh, it worked out for the good. That happened to me, it's going to work out for the good. Well, no, no, no. The good is not the, the trial you have to go through, I mean, as far as it's easy or comfortable. The good is the result it produces. Now, it may be cancer that produces the good. It may be the loss of a child. It may be... Uh, you know, what happened in 9-11? It may be, you go around and you look and you think, okay, what Satan meant for evil, God is using for good. Doesn't mean it's going to be more comfortable for me. It just means it's going to bring about a greater opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ. The trials of life do work for good. Not for ease, not for comfort, but that our lives might be used to reach others for his kingdom. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, do whatever is needed in my life that I might reach others for your kingdom. Not, Lord, do whatever I need in my life to be more comfortable. Lord, do whatever you need to do in my life so I can have it at ease and never go through another trial again. I want my life to, I want to be on the cruise ship to heaven. And I don't want any trials along the way. Guys, it's not about my ease or my comfort, your ease or your comfort. It's about God being glorified and other lives being transformed. Amen? We get to heaven, nothing else is going to matter. Comfort here is irrelevant. The spiritually mature view of good is that in the end, God is glorified and others are impacted. So Lord, if I lose everything that one person might come to know Christ, then that's good. Amen? If I go through the most heavy-duty trial in history, that I might witness to somebody, that I might be a tool that God uses to minister to somebody. I told Tanya and Carcel, you know what? Right now you're grieving, and you should. And we want to grieve with you, and we love you. But you know what? God is going to use this for his glory before it's over. And you are going to minister to somebody that I can't even minister to who's going through the very same thing. Because you'll be able to look them in the eye and say, I've been right where you are. And guess what? God is faithful. Praise God. It does work out for the good. Tristan's in heaven. So hard for us to understand in these finite minds that we've got. Good is not wealth or personal comfort or ease, but it's that our lives would be used to impact others. So what was the good? To save many people alive. The end result was many people's lives were radically impacted. He had to spend time in the pit. He had to spend time in prison. He had to spend time as a slave. He had to do all these things, be falsely accused. But in the end, the result was all worth it. Guys, it's hard when we're in the pit. It's hard when we're in the prison. It's hard when we're being falsely accused to understand that, you know what, before this is over, if I will keep my eyes on the Lord, he's going to use this in a way that will bring glory to his name and impact eternity. And guys, that's what it's all about. 
Nothing else really matters. Focus should not be on the wrong and become bitter, but upon the mighty hand of God and the impact all we've been through will have upon others. And that's exactly how Joseph understood it. And that's how he could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You tried to harm me, God used it for his glory. Guys, is God great enough to take any harmful thing that any person ever tries to do against you for the rest of your life and use it in a way that brings glory to his name? What's the answer? Absolutely. But that's not fair what they did. God knew. But they're telling a lie and they're getting away with it. God knew. There's peace in the sovereignty of God. Amen? There's peace in the promises of God. It doesn't matter how other people treat you. It doesn't matter how unjust it's been. Why? Because God knew he allowed it and he'll be glorified if you let him. Let's get an eternal perspective. Amen? Help us, Lord. Not always easy. Trust God no matter what. He knows what he's doing. Verse 21. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here we see the clear picture of God's grace. They came in the end with confessing hearts of repentance. And he tells them, look, guys, you have nothing to fear. I had already forgiven you. You know what God would say to you tonight if you're a born-again Christian? I've already forgiven you. I love you. I don't mean to bring you harm, but to bring you comfort, to bring you joy, to encourage you, to strengthen you in the midst of the trials, to use you for my glory, to help you live a life that impacts eternity. He says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to encourage you. Those are the same things the Lord does for us. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to provide for you. Last point. Go through this quickly. There's peace in the promises of God. God's work continues even after we're gone. Look at verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. So his father died when he was 54. So 56 more years went from verse 21 to 22. Sometimes that happens in the Bible. You're reading and you go to the next verse, 56 years went by. Just like that. Now what's interesting is he dies at the age of 110. Abraham died at 175, Isaac at 180, Jacob at 147. The longevity of man's life after the flood is getting less and less and less. But Joseph had lived long enough, as we're going to see, according to God's perfect time. Verse 23, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Meshir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So he lived long enough to see his great-grandchildren. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, brethren, I am dying but God. I've got that underlined in my Bible. I am dying but God. Here's the good news. No matter who dies, God is still in control. No matter who goes, God is still going to be doing a great work. In a couple weeks, I'm going to be going down to the Senior Pastors Conference. And Pastor Chuck Smith is 80-something now. And people always say, what's going to happen to the Calvary Chapel movement when Pastor Chuck's not there anymore? Because it all started at Calvary Costa Mesa. You know what's going to happen? Exactly what God wants to happen. Amen? And Pastor Chuck would tell you, guys, it's not about me. He's even said, if anybody puts my name on anything, if it's possible, I will come back and haunt you. Don't you dare do that, right? You don't glorify men, you glorify God, amen? And, and will we all grieve? I will grieve great. Pastor Chuck, God's used him so mightily in my life. I went to school there when I was a kid. I went to church there when I was a teenager. And yeah, yeah, God used that, that ministry in a mighty way. Obviously, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor now. 
But you know what? As much as I love Pastor Chuck, I know that God knows what he's doing. Amen? And he's a faithful God. And I am dying, but God is not. Amen? God's not dead. God's not dying. God's still in control. When we seem overwhelmed and we think it's beyond what we can take, just remember, God is still alive. God is still faithful. And God still knows what he's doing. I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of the land. Land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You know, just because Joseph is dying doesn't mean that the promise of the land of Canaan is not going to happen. It's still going to happen. God is still going to do what he said. Verse 25, then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph too wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. You know what's interesting? You know how long he's going to be mummified too? He's going to be put into a, uh, a coffin and his coffin would sit above ground in Egypt for 400 years until he would finally Joshua would bring him back into the land of promise, his bones. But you know what was awesome? For 400 years, every time a little, one of the children of Israel, one of the kids walked by and said, how come dad, that coffin is above ground waiting over there? Oh, because we made a covenant with Joseph, the children of Israel, that's us, that when we go to the land of promise, we're going to take his body with us. It was a constant reminder of the testimony that God would bring them out of bondage in Egypt and bring them back to the land of promise. I pray that we would live lives that would be that kind of a testimony to the world around us. Amen? Last verse. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So, tonight's chapter, we saw the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. We covered... 56 years in time. We saw the last of the patriarchs die. We see the end of the book of Genesis. But you know what's interesting about this? Is when we get to Exodus chapter 1, it's only after 280 years of silence. From this book till Exodus, 280 years, we don't hear anything. This book that began with the creation of the world ends with the death of their deliverer and the promise of a deliverance to come. The book began with the creation of life but ended with, with the consequences of death as you see both Jacob and Joseph die because everybody dies now. But it points again to the coming of one who would be the deliverer. In Exodus, it's going to be Moses, but as we know, the ultimate deliverer is Jesus Christ. So there's peace in the promises of God. Christians die well. We grieve, but not as those without hope. We can trust God to bring us through even the deepest places of mourning. Please let me, let me say, I'm not trying to minimize that, okay? If you're here and you're going through a tough time, we're with you, we love you, and we're not trying to minimize what mourning is about. Matter of fact, may we be a source of comfort to you during your time of mourning, amen? Fourth, what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. And then finally, God works, God's work continues even after we're gone. Because guys, it's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon him. And he's not going anywhere, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray for those here tonight who've, who are either coming out of a place or in the midst of a place of deep mourning. And Father, I pray that you would comfort them. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is the great comforter. Lord, I pray that you would use us to be a source of comfort to one another. And Lord, I just pray that 
all of us would be able to have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Not peace because we understand, but peace even when we don't. Because we know that you are a faithful God. Because we trust in your grace, in your sovereignty. And so, Lord, I do again. I pray for comfort for those who are mourning. I pray Again, that we would all be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that you might use us to minister one to another, that we would function like a healthy body, Lord. That we might minister to those who are hurting today, that they might minister to us when we are hurting later. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just continue to draw us unto yourself, to fill us afresh every single day, to mold us into the men and women of God you've called us to be. Give us divine appointments, Lord. Help us to speak the truth in love with great boldness. And may we live in such a way, like Joseph, that other people would want to know the God we serve because they see the impact you've had on our lives. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. All God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.